to open your Bibles to First John. It's toward the end of your Bible, just before the book of uh, Revelation. First John, Second John, Third John, Jude, and then Revelation is kind of where that falls. Um, and uh, you know, this morning we get to read a passage in which John, who is, uh, if you remember, it's important to think about who John is that's writing this letter. John was Jesus's beloved friend. And he is writing this letter. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and who wrote uh, Revelation. And so Jesus' beloved and friend and his passionate defender here is writing to believers, and he refers to them. Remember last week he referred to this church as, to these folks he's writing to as children. Well, this week he refers to them as little children, or some translations would say beloved children. And uh, a number of ways that he has challenged believers, he has encouraged, he's given warnings up to this point in the letter. I'll list a few that we've looked at so far. He's encouraged these believers to find true, full joy in fellowship with the Father and with the Son, or with the Father through the Son through right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for one another. You know, a side note regarding God's commands. When we see the Lord rightly and understand what he wants for us and how he desires for us and how he provides for us, we begin to see God's commands as his loving leadership to his people. We begin to see them and recognize that even though I don't understand these commands perfectly, or even though if I was in charge, I might have done things a little bit differently, we begin to see Oh, this is the God, this is my Father who I can trust. And so even if I would write this up differently, I can know that His ways are best because He is all wise. Uh, John has shown them that walking in the light brings open and honest fellowship both with God and with His people. He's encouraged us that we can... We can know that we have come to know God the Father when we keep His commands and love the body of Christ. He's warned us, don't love the shiny things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love the world system or the the shiny, attractive things uh, of the world system. We were at camp yesterday, and the uh, program director's daughter had on this um, kind of fall-themed sparkly skirt on and and his uh, uh her mom comments and said i wish she could just wear this skirt all year long because as she runs around i can always easily find her find her because the sun is just reflecting off of this skirt that she's running around in you know it's just uh running out there in the fields and this shiny little skirt is um is just reflecting the sun and that's how the world seems to us sometimes it's really easy to see the things in the world that just oh they shine because they look fun and they look attractive they look appealing they look like oh maybe that's going to be the thing thing that that solves this deep need in my soul that I can't seem to have solved anywhere else. And so we're attracted to these things uh, like a fisherman's bait. And so John warns against that. And he says, you know, don't don't love the shiny things of the world system. They're not of God. And he gives an exhortation to choose our love and to love our choice because it's what's going to reveal our eternal destiny. And then he speaks of the necessity of abiding in truth that, that they heard from the beginning, which we heard from the beginning, the same truth that brought us into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're to be ever aware that there are people in our midst, there are people around us who actively oppose Jesus and the gospel. And so we need to discern this by clinging to God's truth in the scriptures 
and walking in the Spirit by abiding in Christ, which happens through His Word and in the community of believers, in the community of faith. So as he moves into a, a, what we would, where we have defined kind of a chapter pivot here from chapters 2 to chapter 3, and we'll move uh, looking at these five verses today, he, John is looking at both salvation and sanctification. Remember, sanctification is the process of being more and more set apart unto Jesus, unto the Lord. And so John encourages us to stay with and to abide with Jesus. Sometimes I've, I've, uh, I've had my kids walk with somebody to go do something. I've said, hey, listen, whatever you do, just stay with them and you'll be fine. And John is saying, hey, just stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus, cling closely to his word and you'll be fine. There's a whole lot of, in this world that we don't have to worry about. That's not ours to manage. And so abiding brings a wonderful companion, assurance confidence at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and assurance that if you name the name of Jesus genuinely, if you're a true Christian, which I typically don't appreciate that, like that phrase, well, they're a true Christian. Well, you're either Christian or you're not a Christian. There's no true Christian or partial Christian. You're a Christian, a follower of Jesus or an unbeliever headed for an eternity separated from the love and grace and mercy of God to receive eternal wrath for unbelief, unrighteousness. But here he is really trying to drive home that point. So let's read together 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3 together. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. We shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. John is, he's aged and he's as passionate as ever. There's an encouragement in here for those of you who, who are older believers in the church. John's passion keeps going until the day that the Lord takes him home. He keeps encouraging his, his brothers and sisters in the church, keep on after Jesus. Keep loving Jesus. Don't be, dis, don't be discouraged. Don't be swayed. Don't be distracted by the things of the world. Keep your eyes set on Jesus, older believers, older brothers and sisters, you have such a wonderful opportunity to encourage those of us who are younger, who can sit under your tutelage, who can learn from your experience in your walk with Jesus to, to keep on like John, now aged and really coming alongside the church in her joyous calling and mission and saying that true believers will remain in Christ looking for his return with humble, confident assurance. Humble, confident 
assurance. The Bible tells us that we are destined to look like, think like, talk like, and act like, and be like Jesus. As God's sons and God's daughters, through this new birth, we have a future hope that can't be put into words. I love these parts in the Bible where uh, Paul or, or John is trying to get something put into words, and, and, and it's like they just cannot come up with the right phrases. Here he says, uh, uh, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming he speaks about righteousness, and then in 3.1, he says, see what kind of love? It's this language that's like otherworldly kind of love, but I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself here. He's so honest. He says, what we will be is not quite known yet. In other words, this is going to be incredible. I don't really know how to put it into words yet, but we do know that if we abide in Jesus, it's more than enough. We don't have to worry about the end results. Have you ever tried to uh, lead someone through a project? Have you ever tried to lead someone through uh, something that takes just an understanding that if you just work the process, it will come together in the end, right? Maybe you have different people working on different parts of your yard or different people working on different things going on and you say, you know what, this is your part of this, right? You just keep working at it. You do your part and you'll be able to step back. We will be able to step back together and look and say, oh, look how wonderful this looks. I did my part of this. I don't have to worry about the end result because the end result will take care of itself. And so he tells us in verses 28 and 29, abiding in Christ will bring confidence when Jesus returns because you know that you've been born of God. When he appears, he's saying, Jesus is coming again. The language here in the Greek literally means, uh, says if he returns, but it's the, if, uh, the condition there is referring to the timing of it. We're not exactly sure when he's returning, but we are not unsure of the certainty of his returning. We see it all throughout the pages of Scripture that Jesus Christ will be, be returning. It is as true as ever. James Boyce, um, famous pastor from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. It's mentioned in every one of the New Testament books, with the exception of Galatians, which deals with a, with a particular different kind of doctrinal problem. <clears throat> and the very short books, such as 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon, largely, predominantly, Jesus repeatedly mentions his own return on the night before his crucifixion, he says to the anxious disciples, don't be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is one of the most comforting verses to families who have lost loved ones that they, for all intents and purposes, know are in, were in Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says to the disciples after they uh, see the risen Jesus ascend bodily into heaven and there's two angels with him and in Acts 1.11 he says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. 
Now, there's a whole lot of disagreement about how this is going to unfold, the timing of it, the millennium. There's all kinds of stuff. These are tertiary conversations. These are not primary to our salvation. Right? These are not issues which should cause strong division. We ought to be able to have conversations about how this is going to unfold. Thousands upon thousands of pages have been written. And there's much disagreement on it, and for good reason. There are different perspectives that, that support different perspectives. And that's not John's point here. His point is not to draw all of that out. And that's not to say that it's not those aren't worthwhile conversations, but they ought not be divisive conversations. We ought to be keying in on and clinging to, focusing in on the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And so John wants us to have confidence that when he returns, and he will return, here's what we can know for sure. This is what's primary, that he will return. He will come back visibly. He will come back bodily. He will come back personally, and we are to be ready for it at any moment. We are to be ready for it at any moment. That means this afternoon, your nap may not need to happen. Some of you are really looking forward to that nap, I can tell. You won't be disappointed when Jesus comes in the sky because you'll be so ready for his return. But are you? John says here that there will be those who are, who are confident. And it seems as though there will be some who shrink back from him in shame at his coming. When, when Jesus returns, Christian, you'll be like a little child waiting for his dad to come home from a, a weekend trip away. And you'll, you'll see as, as, as though you would see the car pull in the driveway. And you might run to the window and say, Mom, Dad's home. And he gets out of his car and he doesn't even worry about bringing his bags in because he doesn't care. The bags will take care of that later. And he just wants to get in the house and see his, give his wife a kiss and see his children and give them big hugs. And, oh, Dad, I missed you so much while you were gone. I'm so glad you're home. Oh, son, it's so good to see you too. I missed you so much. Oh, I missed you so much. I've been waiting. I've been sitting here on the couch. Probably the kids wouldn't say that. The wife would probably some, say something more like that. Honey, you should have seen them. For the last hour, they just keep running from their room and they keep looking at the couch, getting on the couch and looking at the window, just waiting for you to get back home. Oh, Christian, that is our posture. That ought to be our posture as we look for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't wait for Jesus. There's one thing that gives me hesitation about Jesus coming back right now. And that's that I know people that I love dearly, who I know, best of my understanding, are not in Christ. And so there's a sense of great anticipation and joy, looking longingly for the return of Jesus and a slight twinge of fear, grief, I know God's sovereign and I know it's all, it, it, it's all right how the Lord uh, orchestrates it, how the Lord understands it all, but I so want them to know the joy that I have in following Jesus. I so want them to know that there's an answer to what they think, wrongly, brings them into a right relationship with God. When they think, oh, I'm a good person and I do good things, 
and I try to be good to my neighbor, and I even try to be nice to those who are not that kind to me. Oh, but there's a subtle pride in there, a subtle a hint of, or in some cases, a massive pride that says, I'm good enough without Jesus. I don't need to repent and I don't need to surrender. This is interesting here because John could be talking about those who might be saved and would shrink back at the sight of Jesus returning in the clouds. And here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians 3.15 talks about when at the judgment seat of Christ, some will have their works burned up because their foundation for the ministry that they had was wood, hay, or straw, 1 Corinthians 3.12 says. But it will be lost and he will be saved. In other words, the works that they tried to do were built on human foundation by human understanding and they have really no eternal value. You know when Jesus said, let the uh, left hand not know what the right hand is doing? If you seek reward from men and you get that reward, well, that's it. You got your reward, right? I mean, sometimes like we throw our shoulder out trying to pat ourselves on the back sometimes, trying to let people know, I mean, you know, slyly, how wonderful we are. I've shared this with you before. I've had times when I've heard somebody talk about something in my, in my soul, there's something going like, I want people to know I did that. I'm telling you, the Lord is just like, look how arrogant you are. Some of you are laughing at me because it's easier to do that than consider your own heart. (laughs) So if we seek reward from men and we get it, we've gotten our reward. And there is no reward in heaven for that. Oh, we're saved. But where we've worked and tried to build wood, hay, and straw, it'll be tested by fire. It'll burn away. We'll be saved, but as though only by fire. So that's one kind of person who's a professing follower of Christ that's not experiencing the joy of abiding in Christ. And there's some fruit, but not very much, very little. I think, though, the person he's really addressing here is maybe those who will be ashamed at his coming because they're lost. That's who I think he's really driving at here. Mark 8, 38 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Revelation 6, 15 and 16 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It can be really revealing to your spiritual state, to your spiritual health to consider whether you are like a child continually running to get your knees on the couch so you can see out the window, ready for your father to come home, ready for Jesus to come in the clouds. Or if you're somewhat ambivalent, he'll come. Don't really know what all that's going to be like. Don't really seem too interested in it. Not really working toward it. But just kind of chill. 
It may mean, it may mean that you're not a Christian. It surely means that you're not abiding in Christ. Because when we're abiding in Christ, that's not the posture. That's not the posture of one who's growing in Christ through his word. Now, the challenge is I don't know your heart. You may or may not even know your heart, which is why we need to ask the Lord, Lord, search me. It's why the psalmist prayed, search me and, and know my heart. Psalm 139, 23, 4, 5, and 6, I think right in there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But John's goal is to say, I want you to have confidence. I want you to have confidence. And he says, secondly, in verses one and two of chapter three, since you are amazed by his great love, you will be conformed in him or conformed to him. See what kind of love the father has given to us or, or behold what manner of love the father has given to us. I remember memorizing this as a song as a child. You guys remember that song? Behold what manner of love the Father is. No? Anybody? Given unto us. I think it was from some children's stories. I can't remember where it's from, but. That we should be called the sons of God. And so we are, John says. So the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, if we are, we are God's children now. And what we be, will be has not yet appeared. But when but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is a difficult couple words to translate right here. It, it, it's, it's really like referring to an otherworldly love. See what kind of love. Uh, you remember when we were reading in Genesis, e, e, each each animal was created according to their kind. Each fruit was created according to its kind. Trees according to their kind with its seed in it, which when it hits the air and then hits the ground and it dies and then it gives life to more of its kind. See what kind of love. It's a different kind of love than you and I know. It's a different kind of love than you and I could ever experience. It's otherworldly. And we have Pages and pages, thousands of pages of God revealing himself to us through God's perfect, sufficient, complete, perfect, inerrant word of God. Through creation, God has painted a tapestry of who he is to us. And all of this combined cannot reveal and cannot adequately communicate this, this one-way love. This love that only God possesses for his people, for those who turn to him in faith. So John talks about this, just being amazed at it. I will tell you, one of the struggles that we have, and, and it can be good, but it can be a challenge, is sometimes we read the Bible and we want to know, what's the application? What's the application? Well, tell me what to do with this. Do you know, I was talking to the kids this week about how to meditate which uh, we hear the word, you might hear the word meditate and be like, whoa, what's going on at this thing? Now, I'm not talking about the Eastern meditation where you try to empty yourself, which is not of the Lord. I'm talking about meditating on, thinking on, pondering the word of God, where we fill ourselves. The world says empty yourself. 
God says, fill yourself. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens through the word of God. And taking a simple passage like Psalm 23 and saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord. God. Creator. Provider. Sustainer. Healer. The. The Lord, not a Lord. A, a Lord is my shepherd. No, no, there's one Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. The one who leads. He cares. He, he provides. He protects. He disciplines to get back in line. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Well, that's interesting because I feel like I have a lot of wants. I have a lot of things that I, I want to get or things I want to be or places I want to go or all of these kinds of things. But God says that I shall not want, which must mean that I have everything that I need. So maybe with Paul, I'm learning the secret of being content that I have everything that I need in Christ. And this is just by way of example and one verse in the Bible. We need to slow down, church. We need to carve out time to sit and read and be amazed. Be amazed at the love of God. John is amazed. At the love of God. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he writes, he just is writing and he's talking about the Lord and he's talking about the Lord. And then in the middle of these books, in the middle of these letters, there's these doxologies, which would seem like a, a very appropriate place for that if he's planning out his letter would be at the end of the letter and you end with a nice uh, a crescendo of doxology, right? But John is, or Paul is writing and, and John is writing and they're, they're writing about the Lord and the attributes of God and how he loves his people and, and they just get so excited talking about the Lord. It just explodes into doxology, which brothers and sisters, as we worship throughout the week, as we worship with our families throughout the week, this is what to happen when we come together on Sunday morning. It just explodes into praise and thanksgiving. And we're not just going through the motions, but we want to. We desire coming together, encouraging each other. Sometimes you're the one that gets to, uh, in the midst of the valley of deep darkness, you get to explode in praise to the Lord. You're not even sure how it's happening. You just know, I don't know what's going on in my life. I can't control anything in my life, but I know that the Lord loves me and I can rest secure in that. And I am going to just Give it all and praise the Lord this morning. And your testimony of praise and thanksgiving in the midst of deep darkness is such an encouragement to someone who does not necessarily feel like they're there right now. At other times, you're the person who's not there. I'm the person that's not there now. And you say, Lord, I know these things are true, but I'm, not, I'm just not feeling it. I don't, I don't feel the truth that I know in my mind. Well, that's because our heart is deceitful above all things. And so John is saying, think about, consider, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. This otherworldly love. Charles Spurgeon says, 
Therefore, you poor people that love me, you sick people, you unknown people, you obscure people without any talent, I have published it before heaven and earth. I have made the angels know it that you are my children. You don't feel like you have any worth. You're not sure where your identity is. You're not sure that you have any value. Well, here's what you can know, child of God, that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has set his eyes on you as he said to his children in Deuteronomy. And he says, I love you. You don't need anybody else's love. You've got God's. Does that impact you? We should be riveted at that reality. God loves you. He demonstrated it by sending his own son. I have published it before heaven and earth. I have made it known to the angels that you are my children and I am not ashamed of you. I glory in the fact that I have taken you for my sons and daughters. How great is the love the Father has shown us that we should be called children of God. Is there a more endearing term To be called children of God. Individually and bride. Corporately. The father calls us children of God. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. The son calls us children of God. He is not ashamed to call them brethren as the son of God. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But not only does being amazed by God's great love cause you to be conformed to him as you abide in him, but filled with hope. Filled with hope. First John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope thus purifies himself even as he is pure. We see these significant themes in this passage. We see righteousness. Have you ever seen a child and you, you don't have to know if you, you, maybe you're in a public park or maybe you're in a public event or church like this and someone new comes in and, and, uh, and, and maybe they're, we'll just say a church environment, maybe they're dropping off their kids over here and then the parents are over here and maybe you see them later and you see one face and then later on you see the other face and you go, I don't know who these folks are, but I know that that one belongs to that one. You know what I'm talking about? I know that that young lady belongs to that father. I know that that son belongs to that mother. That's to be true of believers. Jesus in his righteousness produces righteous children. When God comes and he, 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 he enlivens a heart through his righteousness, righteous children grow from it. And this gives us hope and progressively learning how and working toward purifying our lives. I said at the beginning that John has sanctification, both salvation and sanctification in mind when he's writing here. 
And what he's saying here is that the natural response to the hope that we have in the Lord is to continually be striving to become more and more like him. We're to work out what God has worked in us. We're to put a spiritual sweat into growing to be like Christ. There's no one who farms any ground that would say, yeah, the neatest thing happens. I mean, we change from one season and it goes to another season and, and some wheat falls off of a grain and it falls into the ground. And maybe a few thousand pieces of, uh, of wheat or corn or beans fall into the ground. And then the neatest ha- thing happens in the fall. It just springs up in rows. It's like all neatly ordered. We don't have to do anything. No. You sow seed. You sow seed deliberately, orderly, carefully. Well, you can't control the rain, but, but you can control some aspects of it. And then you sit back and you, you pray for God to send enough rain and sun for the seed to grow. And then there's a harvest. Brothers and sisters, how foolish it would be if we were to think we make a profession of faith and then we just walk away from it for 40 years. And then one day we just expect, boom, a harvest of righteousness in my life. We live in a world of more, bigger, better, faster, cheaper. It's almost like an anti-gospel. God has said, when you are amazed by my love, you want to abide with me. You want to put in the sweat, not to earn your salvation, but flowing out of your salvation. Pastor Sam Storms is exactly right when he says, he shares an understanding of how our vision of Christ ties into our sanctification. And he says, just as the vision of Christ in the future will sanctify us wholly, the vision of Christ in the present, which we see in the scriptures, sanctifies us progressively. One day it will be in a moment and we are sanctified and glorified fully. Now it's progressively, moment by moment, day by day, learning to trust him learning to depend on him. It is our experience of Christ that sanctifies. Isn't it good to know that, that God is faithful to finish that, which he started, Paul said it in Philippians 1.6, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What John is encouraging us with is that true believers will remain in Christ looking for his return with a humble yet confident assurance. And that expectation drives us to fellowship with the Lord day by day. And sure, he deals with sin. It's coming up. It's coming up. He's about to make some pretty strong statements in the next 10 or 10 verses or so. But he, but he prefaces it by saying, focus on the wonder of the father's love. So I just want to ask, Christian, are you amazed by the love of the Father? Amazed to the point that it drives you deeper and deeper into his word? As you do that, and as you do this increasingly, and I would say as we do this together, 
whether together means with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandkids, with the church family. We will help one another in fleshing this out, encouraging each other as long as it's called today. And God will grow a beautiful harvest that only he understands how it grew because he's the one who brings the growth. Let's pray.